This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Anoush, and on today's New Statesman podcast, we're joined by Bill Browder, once Russia's largest foreign investor and now one of the most vocal campaigners against Russian corruption, to talk about the UK's attempts to impose financial sanctions. So this is a UK political podcast, Bill. So we're going to talk mainly about the UK's role. I wonder how you've found the sanctions that the UK government has been trying to introduce so far. What do you make of them? It's it started it started in a pretty pathetic way when the very first sanctions were announced. There were, I think, four oligarchs who most of whom had been sanctioned. I think all of whom had been sanctioned before by the US and a few banks. I think that was the first Tuesday after the invasion. And then they ratcheted it up to, to Gazprom Bank and Spare Bank and BTB Bank and a bunch of other and a few more oligarchs. Then they added Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov. And, that, and then we, we added a, a few more oligarchs. And so it's starting to look strong. But I would argue that we're in a moment of true existential risk and sanctioning a dozen oligarchs doesn't do the trick. If we need to do this properly, we need to sanction 100 oligarchs. And I'm not sure whether there is the ability or political will to do that. And I think that's the necessary next step if we want to contain Vladimir Putin. Well, you're sort of the godfather of sanctions, are you, with um, the Magnitsky Act and taking it worldwide? Is it too little too late now, the sanctions that we introduce, even if we even if we go further, as you've just outlined? There's been so many opportunities to sanction these individuals before, after many previous acts of aggression by Putin that just haven't been acted on. Just thinking of the UK in particular, the poisoning of the Skripals, for example. I would argue that part of the reason that Putin had the guts to go into Ukraine and do what he was planning to do was because he looked at situations like the poisoning of Sergei Skripal and the invasion of Georgia and the annexation of Crimea. And he saw that there were no sanctions of any significance to him and therefore didn't think there would be this time. The problem is with Putin is that once he makes a decision to do something, he doesn't have a reverse gear and he has no ability to admit a mistake and he has no ability to show weakness. And so we are in a bind here because if if the purpose of sanctions are to try to dissuade him from doing something, 
I think we've, we're past that point. I, I think he's all in no matter what. In my mind, the purpose of sanctions are slightly different, which is that we're in a position right now where it may be Ukraine today, but if you look at his intentions and you look at what, what's being told to us by our allies in the Baltic countries and by President Zelensky, he's not stopping with Ukraine. His, he's got much broader ambitions. And so it should be our objective to do anything we can to choke off any resources that he may have to carry on with this war in Ukraine and to ultimately challenge us at, in a NATO border. And if that is our objective, and that has to be our objective, then of course we need to sanction these oligarchs. And, and if, we don't, if we don't do it, then we, we're going to be facing a much more difficult problem later on when, when we're facing Putin on a military level in a NATO conflict. And, you know, you know some of these oligarchs, you, you've done business with them. How does it affect them to be sanctioned? I'd love to know what does it mean once an oligarch is sanctioned? How does it affect them day to day? And in turn, how does that feed back to Putin and potentially influence his decisions? Let's start with the second part of the question and then go to the first. Hmm. Um, these oligarchs are not just looking after their own. The biggest oligarchs are looking after Putin's money. The next level oligarchs are looking after senior government officials' money, and so on and so forth. These are all people who are um, custodians, nominees, and trustees for Putin and his government. And the reason you want to sanction the oligarchs is because you want to sanction Putin. How does it affect his behavior? It means that he has less access to capital for whatever nefarious purposes he wants to use it for. And so it's truly important um, that everyone understands that. This is not just, uh, it's not some kind of populist exercise to go after rich people. It's an exercise to go after the, the most significant people who look after Putin's money and who are integral to the whole fabric of decision-making in the Russian government. How does it affect them? It affects them profoundly because the moment you get put on a sanctions list, your money is frozen. It means that you can't use your money. It means that when they start running out of money from the frozen central bank reserves and they start running out of money because Western companies have stopped doing business in Russia, they don't have another source of money, which is their, quote, safe offshore capital. And I've seen it with my own eyes. I know how these people behave. I know their psychology. And this is the most devastating thing that you can do to Vladimir Putin is sanction his oligarchs. That's so interesting you talk about their psychology, because I sometimes, obviously I don't feel sorry for oligarchs, but I sometimes wonder what it's like to be in such a precarious position, to be so wealthy, but to know that your position could change in a second, depending on uh, a decision from perhaps a country that wants to sanction you or a decision from Putin himself. It's a very good observation. So m most of the time, if you come across somebody who's worth a few billion dollars, they're brimming with self-confidence and... <laughs> and happiness and ability to do anything and buy anything and have a good time. When you come across these Russians, they're very morose and aggressive, arrogant, but also fearful and distrusting. And because at any moment, they're effectively acting at the pleasure of Vladimir Putin. And at any moment, he can change their entire life circumstance. He can take their money away, he can take their freedom away, and he can take their life away. And so it's a terrible uncomfortable situation to be in. And now they're in a very, an even worse situation because in order to keep their money and be rich, they've had to do a deal with the devil. They might not, Some of these people might not have been bad people to start out with, but they made a decision for money that they were going to throw their lot in with Vladimir Putin. 
and look after his money, fund whatever he asks them to fund, look act as custodians for friends of his, make investments on his behalf or whatever. And now they're in a position where they're damned if they do and damned if they don't, because uh, the West is now saying, because you've thrown your lot in with Putin, we're going to have our ounce of flesh. And it's, it's unfortunate for them, but these are not particularly nice people. And uh, if you have any sympathy, you probably shouldn't. Yes, understandably. And obviously, you've made it your life's work to campaign for human rights violators to have their assets frozen, to have visas blocked, etc. And I wonder, what are the arguments that you come up against from states that are reluctant to do this? You've mentioned the UK at the beginning of this interview being quite slow to act, even in this current crisis. The arguments were different pre-invasion versus post-invasion. Back in the day, pre-invasion, both here and, and in Europe, you had all these people who were saying, we need to do business with Russia. Putin's not that bad. You don't want to provoke him. This is not the right way to go about it. That, that type of thing. And, and it was particularly came from Germans and Swedes and all sorts of people who were Dutch, people who are very forthright now were being absolutely impossible before. And, and it was infuriating for me to be dealing with them. I knew Putin's criminal side from many years ago, and I watched him in action. And all these people ignoring the elephant in the room, and and I guess a sort of combination of wanting to carry on feeding at the Russian trough financially, along with some weird form of appeasement where everybody was saying that, or thinking they don't want to do anything to to if inflame Vladimir Putin is a, a battered wife with a violent husband, not you know just tiptoeing around, not wanting to wake him when he's drunk in case he beats them up. That, that's how everyone was de- dealing with Vladimir Putin. After the invasion, <clears throat> you still have people saying, okay, we've sanctioned him. Maybe we've done enough. We don't, we don't want to provoke him to a nuclear war. If, if that is the feeling, and he knows that's the feeling, then he, he will continue to threaten a nuclear war until he takes all of Eastern Europe. That, that is, if Vladimir Putin knows that he doesn't have a strong hand other than his one big trump card, which is his ability to threaten nuclear war. You mentioned places relying on Russian money. And actually, I noticed that you tweeted this morning a list of companies continuing to do business in Russia. And they included sort of household names, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Nestle, Starbucks, Unilever. And then you said we should be willing to boycott them unless they stop doing business in Russia. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Will you be boycotting McDonald's? Absolutely. I, I boycotted McDonald's long ago for right, help. Okay. But the point is right. And it's, it's quite interesting. So I've, over the last week, I've been singling out companies and individuals who are continuing to do business with Russia, putting it out on Twitter, and getting enormous viral interest in that, and then watching one by one them folding. For example, there was a British law firm, Freshfields, that several days after VTB Bank, one of the most important Putin pocket banks, was put on the sanctions list, they were then applied to the British Treasury for an exemption from the sanctions to continue to provide legal advice. And in the world where everybody is taking huge financial hits to stop doing business uh, with Putin in Russia, I I, I tweeted that out. And enough of their existing clients were not happy with that, that a couple days later, they dropped VTB Bank. Same with Shell. Shell was in the business of buying discounted Russian oil. I don't know whether my tweet had anything to do with it, but I tweeted that out. And and shortly thereafter, they announced that they were going to stop buying Russian oil. I think it's everybody's duty, both from a government perspective and a private sector perspective, to starve Putin of any resources. 
we have a true catastrophe going on. Putin is a terrorist killing people, that none of these Ukrainian people that we watch on TV dying have done anything wrong. They're just living their lives. They've done nothing wrong. This is a total unprovoked act of aggression, an act of terrorism by Vladimir Putin killing innocent people for no reason other than his own, in my opinion, desire to stay in power after 22 years of being a dictator. And it's every person's obligation to take a little bit of a financial hit and to not do business with any company that continues to do business with Russia so that they all stop. This is what ultimately led to the end of apartheid when there was a total economic embargo. And we have to do the same thing with Russia right now. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Were you surprised then that Putin made this move? You said you've known his criminal side for years. You're probably, you've been described as his number one enemy. You're probably his number one foreign enemy. Foreign at enemy. The I mean, Zelensky yeah. is clearly his number one enemy and he's already sent three death squads unsuccessfully to kill him. I am totally surprised because it, this is, so the pattern of behavior for the last 22 years was to keep one foot in the civilized world and one foot in the criminal world. And so Vladimir Putin would be rubbing shoulders with other members of the G20, having summits, attending Council of Europe meetings, International Olympic Committee meetings as a, as a legitimate head of a sovereign state. And then the other foot was in the criminal world where he was organizing assassination using polonium-210 nuclear compound in Grosvenor Square and Novichok a banned chemical nerve agent in Salisbury, shooting down airplanes, assassinating other people all over the world, stealing money in, 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 the, in tens of billions of dollars. And so I always thought that he liked that. Sort of, and, and it was almost enjoyable for him to be watching how weak all the people were in the civilized world, accepting all this criminal behavior. And, and he spent years and years cultivating all sorts of people to come on board. He got Gerhard Schroeder to become the board member of Rosneft and 
nominated him for being a board member of Gazprom. And he got Francois Fillon, the former French um, prime minister, to to do the same, to, to do one, one of these board things. And the foreign, the former foreign minister of Austria. And, and, and all these people were crowding around him, helping him, being on boards, apologizing for him, giving speeches. And, 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 and I thought he enjoyed that and wanted to carry on. And when people asked me, do I think he was going to invade? I, I thought he was just, this was a great way to just set up a bunch of, send a bunch of kids to the border, on, put them in a bunch of tents, make them freeze in the winter, and then get some concession from the West in terms of political concession. I, I couldn't have imagined that he would go full on criminal, both foot both feet in the criminal camp. And this is a major shift. And in 24 hours, he lost the entire world. He became an international pariah. All these people, with the exception of Gerhard Schroeder, who hasn't abandoned him, are all have completely you know turned on him. Even even the president, uh, the prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, who has been mm. his most loyal Trojan horse inside the uh, EU, has turned on him. Yes, and, and and on that theme of all of these countries turning on him, were you surprised at the unity of the response, having plugged away at this stuff for so many years? Again, I, so I, I watched. Putin was making a bet, and, and I kind of thought that he was right. That when it came to the uh, Ukraine invasion, we would behave the same way we did in all the other atrocities that he committed, which was the Germans would want their gas, and the Italians would want to sell their luxury goods, and all this type of stuff. What Putin hadn't really banked on. And I think I give great credit to, to the British government and the U.S. government was they just leaked all the intelligence they had and every day said Putin's going to invade, Putin's going to invade, Putin's going to invade. And when Putin tried to create some kind of weird story about how he was responding to some provocation, it was so obvious that it was a lie that everybody in the entire free world had to react to Putin launching a naked aggression with no provocation against a peaceful country. And there's no way you can respond to that other than having a tough economic response. The way it was handled by the US and the UK was masterful and and thoughtful, given how Putin had done it before. That's really interesting. And actually, there have been reports that the war isn't going the way Putin necessarily planned it. And I know that in your original guides as a hedge fund manager, you started fighting corruption in Russia and trying to get Russian companies to improve their corporate governance for business purposes before the death of your lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. And you've dedicated your life to fighting in injustice since then. But it didn't start out necessarily as an altruistic venture because it's actually better for business, better for the Russian state, better for your investments if there was less corruption in the, in the system. And I wonder if that corruption in the system now is manifesting in the war not going to Putin's plan. It's an excellent question. And, and, and it, it, I think it defines everything perfectly. It is. So it, it, we have a, the military budget of Russia is equivalent to the military budget of the UK in terms of actual dollars spent. But from what my experience in Russia, the closer you get to state institutions, the more corruption there is. Mm-hmm. And for, for example, when I was there, Gazprom was trading at a 99.7% discount um, to BP and Exxon per barrel of hydrocarbon reserves because so much stuff was being stolen out of the company. And, and the same thing is true with the military. So they might have the same military budget, but everything is being stolen. And so when they're ready to launch an invasion, all the real assets were parked in bank accounts and villas and yachts. <laughs> and so everything wasn't working and it's not working. And, and, and it just continues to not work in, in all different ways. And so you have, first of all, you have a, an unmotivated staff because they're not being paid. The, the army. I'm sure all the equipment has been, all the spare parts have been sold for extra money. 
they probably sold the gas out of the tanks and they're running out of gas. And 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 every different way. I read an interesting story this morning about how Russia created their own mobile phone network because they were worried about eavesdropping using foreign ones. <laughs> and it didn't doesn't work. <laughs> and, and, and so it's just I I, I don't want to use bad language, but it starts with a C L and it ends with a K. Um, <laughs> And over there, it's a complete chaos. And they're losing, according to Ukrainian estimates, the Russian military has already lost like 11,000 soldiers and um, just an, an unbelievable number of tanks and armored personnel vehicles and planes and everything because it's not a tip-top, ship-shape military. And I wonder, this is probably a bit of an unfair question, but I wonder in that case, what, how do you see this ending or or at least the sort of current phase coming to an end? Can the West and, and other countries around the world who are opposing Putin's actions really stop this through economic measures alone? So th- there's a lot of different ways this thing can end. If we can completely strangle Putin's finances, he's going to run out of money. This is costing a billion or $2 billion a day to run this he doesn't have the um, financial resources with the money frozen at the central bank, with the SWIFT ban, the partial SWIFT ban, I should point out, and all the other sort of private sector boycotts. This is not going to, he's just not going to have enough money to do this. Since he's not in a mindset or has the psychology to reverse, the only thing we can do is, try, is to get him to stall out. And the Ukrainians are doing an admirable job of holding him back. And if, we, if they can hold him off for more days, more weeks, and we can strangle him economically, he's not going to have enough money to carry on and do all the things he, he's got planned. That's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is he does have the money. The atrocities escalate. In some way, he succeeds at Ukraine. And then he comes to the border of Estonia or Lithuania, and he points his guns, and he points his nukes, and then he says okay, what do you guys want to do? And then we have this big debate here in the UK and in the US. And um, we say, do we want to go to war to protect Estonia? And and he's hoping after this shameful capitulation in Afghanistan, where we we, we left the country to the Taliban to protect 3,000 soldiers who weren't even in combat, he's hoping that we're going to say, um, you know, you can have it. And then he'll have some big Yalta type negotiation where he takes all of everything after 1945 that the Soviet Union controlled, and that will be his new empire. That's his. That's our worst case scenario, and that's his best case scenario. And there's one other scenario, with a low probability, but not a no probability scenario, which is that the Ukrainians just keep on doing what they're doing, and at some point, defeat the Russian invader, that they make it just impossible, that they just take out all, so much military capacity that they just the Russians have no no choice but to retreat. I say low probability scenario. That's the best case scenario for us. Yeah, of course. And if you don't mind, just one last question. The UK government has obviously been under quite a lot of scrutiny for the amount of Russia, illicit Russian finance that comes through London and also the links between some powerful Russians and the Conservative Party. I just wonder what more should the UK government be doing or is it a lost cause, cause under a government like this? They have every ability and capacity to do the right thing. I think that whatever influence the Russians may have had in the past, it's so de minimis compared to the existential risk that we're facing right now that they intend to and they will do a lot more. It's frustrating watching the the sort of fits and starts as this anti-Putin policy gets rolled out. But the downside of not doing it is just so dramatic that I, I think it will be done this time around. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Bill Browder. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and Bill Browder. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. 